What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. This one's a long time coming. Can't believe it took me over three years to get Jimmy Song on the podcast. We sat down to talk about a new book that he co-authored with a bunch of Bitcoiners. Thank God for Bitcoin. The creation, corruption, and redemption of money tying Bitcoin to Christianity may be triggering for some of you freaks. And there's a lot of atheists out there. I know there's a lot of God haters, but really liked this episode. Enjoyed it. Diving deep. Talk about positivism versus natural law theory. Sound money versus easy money. Uh, the, the societal ills that, that leak when you have a, a society built on easy money and how a sound monetary standard lowers time preference collectively and and makes society better off overall. So you guys are going to like this. I'm not going to spoil it too much. Again, long time coming. Really happy Jimmy and I were able to get this in the bag here. Uh, speaking of in the bag, how's your bag looking these days? Are you stacking sats? Are you stacking sats? Are you not? If you're not, it's time to look at the motherfucking cash up, cash up. Help me stack sats, send sats, receive sats, and sell sats if you so please for saying sats, 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 sats for you freaks who don't know, maybe new to the podcast. What are sats? What the hell are sats, Uncle Marty? What is this sats you're talking about? Sats is short for Satoshis, and one Bitcoin can be broken down into 100 million units known as Satoshis or sats. So 100 million sats equals one Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can stack sats. Instead of buying a fraction of Bitcoin, we're stacking whole sats on the Cash App. And on top of that, you can DCA in the sets. What's DCA, Uncle Marty? What's that? What's DCA? Dollar cost average. You can set it and forget it automatically on the Cash App. You can buy daily, weekly, bi-weekly. You put in the amount you want to buy on that set cadence that you choose, and you're automatically stacking sats in the background. On top of that, you can stack slivers of stonks via Cash App investing, if you so please. Because all this is connected to your bank account, there's no four to five day waiting periods. You can start stacking today. On top of that, they have the Bruce program connected to their uh, debit card, their Boost card. Accepted anywhere Visa is accepted. Personalize that card. Uh, initiate a boost with a partner merchant. Go shop there. Save some money. Use that saved money. Stack some sets. That simple. On top of that, Cash App can even be your bank account if you want to. Uh, they're allowing individuals to get accounting numbers, routing numbers, so they can direct deposit their paychecks into the Cash App. You want to cut out the old evil banks, you can use Cash App. Um, and if you do download the Cash App, make sure you use the code Stacking Sats. S T A C K I N G S A T S. You're going to get ten dollars, and ten dollars going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. I know we said Owls Lacrosse, but I was driving to pick up breakfast this morning, and I saw a bald eagle. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what I, I think a bald eagle would say to an owl. All right, use the code stacking sats. Download the Cash App today and enjoy this episode, freaks. I thoroughly did. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that 
In a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy, Marty Bent, here. Wednesday night rip. Very excited for this. Actually embarrassed. Jimmy, I'm sorry it's taken us this long. It's about three years into this podcast, and this is your first appearance. Well, uh, you know, if, um, if there's anything that I have to say, I forgive you. It's, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very fitting for the, for the conversation we're about to embark on. Indeed um, it is. Yes. So obviously sitting down with Jimmy Song, prolific Bitcoiner, educator, uh, host of the Bitcoin Fix of this podcast, author and co-author of many books, uh, including uh, the Little Bitcoin book and uh, Programming Bitcoin. But tonight we're here to talk another book about another book. Thank God for Bitcoin, the creation, corruption and redemption of money. I'm very excited for this conversation because as I was mentioning to you, Jimmy, uh, I've opened up recently on this podcast i've been getting a little closer to jesus recently just because mm. uh the world out there seems a bit nihilistic i've had uh, a son enter my life that really sort of uh i guess grounds you as you know you 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 have many children yourself mm. um and i think this topic particularly is very interesting it was uh i was actually on a phone call with a friend of mine telling him uh, that i was about to interview you about this subject particularly we're talking about the parallels between Bitcoin's inception uh, mm. and and Christianity specifically. Mm. Um, so thank God for Bitcoin. You uh, graciously gave me a, a free Kindle version so I could uh, skim through it uh, before this conversation. And the content, I think, is going to be eye-opening for a lot of people. First of all, Russell Okun, right in the forward. Yeah, That's yeah. Um, his uh, his brother-in-law, George, uh, George McHill, is one of the co-authors. So... He uh, he offered to write it. He was very excited about the project. Like it's it's kind of crazy. Like uh, I don't know if you want the backstory of how it came about or whatever. But now let's rip it. Let's get into it. Yeah. Uh, so we uh, so George and I met at uh, in L.A. Uh, when Russell held his uh, Bitcoin conference. Bitcoin is and um, and we were talking and we both discovered that we we're Christian and. We kept in touch after the conference and he and I just started emailing each other um, and we we're just sort of asking interesting spiritual questions about Bitcoin. And eventually we brought in a third guy and we started doing like a Bible study. <laughs> and uh, after we had done like a, like a little bit of a study of just, you know, money in the Bible and there's a lot of scripture about money. So uh, we, we, we did like three or four of those. Um, after that, we were like, you know what, we should invite more people and see what happens. Um, pretty much everyone I asked said yes, and everyone he asked said yes, and we ended up getting, you know, I, we, we had at one point like 10 people in the Bible study. Uh, towards the end, we were just like, okay, uh, well, and we, we started uh, studying um, your Guido Halsman's uh, The Ethics of Money Production, which uh, is... Uh, you know, is an Austrian economics book, but uh, there's just so much like church history in there and so much moral arguments about it. Uh, are you familiar? 
Oh, yes. It's one of my favorite books on money production. Actually, again, the friend I was having a conversation with before uh, I uh-huh. was telling about, I was like, this reminds me mm-hmm. of the ethics of money production. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's definitely inspired. Um, yeah. the, the book that we read next was Honest Money by Gary North. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but he used to be an advisor to Ron Paul. Um, he, he calls himself a Christian economist, and he goes through various biblical ber- verses and argues for sound money, basically. And uh, towards the end of uh, going through both books, uh, what we can't, the conclusion we came to was both books are great, right? Like they, they argue essentially uh, for why the current system is just so corrupt. But that we, we found both books' endings pretty depressing because uh, like this was, both were written before Bitcoin pretty much. And uh, the call to action was something like, we need to get more people to understand the importance of the gold standard. And uh, we need to take political action to put us back on the gold standard, which Nixon took us off in 1971. And we were like, that is not going to happen. <laughs> and we need to write one that has something uh, with Bitcoin in it because Bitcoin is the missing piece for both books, we felt like. And that's essentially the book we ended up writing. Yeah, and the I love the uh, the excerpts from the Bible that you pull out, and I think we could start the conversation around one specifically that's commonly uh, misquoted, which mm-hmm. is uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. People mm-hmm. usually drop out the first half of that and just say <laughs> money is the root of all evil. Right. Um, right. And I think another particular quote that you guys pulled too is you can't serve two gods at once god mm-hmm. and money being money essentially turning into a god driving everybody's life especially if you're living paycheck to paycheck in an inflationary environment trying to stay up you're you're basically serving uh the debt-fueled fiat system mm-hmm. and i think let's focus on the first one the, the love of money is the root of all evil mm-hmm. uh how is that misinterpreted in your p- opinion and what does it actually mean yeah, I, I think um, for Christians especially, that or and even non-Christians, the, there's a sense in which like money is kind of beneath them, right? I have two principles for money, right? Like it, it's as if it's uh, something that they should be above, and pretty much everyone acts that way. But when you actually watch their behavior, they care very deeply about money, and they do everything that they can for money, and if they can get just a small raise, they'll go and switch jobs in a completely different industry and everything. Their actions belie what they actually believe, despite what they sort of like say they believe. Um, and uh, and that that's one aspect in which money is the root of all evil. If you misquote it, that that's what it becomes. It's like, oh, it should be beneath me. Uh, but if you actually study scripture, if you study the Bible, yeah, money is not put into this like place beneath us right it's it's a it's very much a part of being human and it's it's how we relate to each other it's how we um you know make a living it, it's what it, it's a way to store up value that you've provided through your work uh through the work of your hands and you know a large part of what it means to be human uh you know the the whole concept of dignity comes from bearing the image of God. And 
and that essentially means that you create things with your hands with with you you have that power that pretty much nothing else uh has it, is as humans we have the ability to create something or make order out of chaos and and money is a critical part of that because when we do that and we provide value for others we get to store it up in money and then get to spend it in some way that uh in the future as a hedge against uncertainty so um my uh, love of money is the root of all evil uh, all kinds of evil not all evil right all kinds of evil and uh and that i think is uh is definitely true because there is a sense in which you can serve the created thing instead of the creator and that is something that we emphasize in the book is is that you know if, if you do serve money then then you're doing something wrong and that and it leads to all sorts of uh, spiritual pathology as i would call it uh but if you sir, uh you know if money is in its proper place then all sorts of things are really good and 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 good things come out of that um of civilization uh, and and it's a it's a wonderful thing so yeah that that's how i would uh you know put that verse unfortunately the current system makes it very difficult to put money in its proper place it's either too far beneath us or too far above us and that's not the right place no and i think this ties in perfectly to the introduction of the book or the forward of the book uh by russell in which he he um lays out the story of of the two uh houses or buildings that were built mm -hmm. one with a solid foundation another built on a foundation of sand uh, and it's becoming glaringly obvious that our current economy and the whole pricing mechanism of the world the money is built on a foundation of sta sand and the transition to the bitcoin standard will hopefully get us back to a solid foundation like how important is a quality foundation uh in society like we were like the love uh the love of money uh is all kinds of evil is focused really on the individual but when you think about a foundational aspect for a whole society and how that matriculates uh from individual to individual to create something vast like a, a global economy like how important is money as a solid foundation yeah um i mean i'm a i'm an engineer so i think like an engineer and it's it's uh i i remember back in 98 when i started my uh programming career um i had to program with two different web servers for some websites that i was building and things like that one was on windows and it was um iis and one was on linux and it was called apache now i knew that apache was far superior and uh and if you if you've ever built web apps i mean there are many better things now like uh, lighty and nginx and many other things but back then apache it was either apache or iis if you built anything on apache it would scale pretty well um if you built anything on iis it got it got dicey really fast cuz the windows server world was just horrible and it sucked up too many resources and it couldn't handle that many concurrent users and all this other stuff. I I'm sure it's better now, but at least back then it was terrible. Um and that's how I kind of see money. Uh because if you build it on the wrong foundation, then everything on top of it suffers from that bad foundation. Uh I mean, we've built lots of great things, but they're built on this really 
terrible foundation and it makes it very difficult to upkeep a lot of those things. Um, I mean, we, we made air, like air travel pretty much ubiquitous and internet ubiquitous as well. But those things are on kind of a terrible foundation. It's not a coincidence that a lot of air, uh, airlines are like near bankruptcy or go through bankruptcy every five, seven, eight years or something like that. The bad money creates these bad industries, uh, whereas a good money creates a much more solid footing by which these things can grow. And I, I think that's how I would understand that analogy uh, with respect to money. Yeah, that was one thing your Guido Holzman really drilled on mm. in the ethics of money production is the misallocation of capital that proceeds from a fiat debt-based monetary system leads to the crappy economies that we have. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, is... not just the crappy economies. Uh, uh, like, that, that's one aspect of it. But that's, uh, they're, they're far more significant second and third order effects. And I think those, the, those things that affect character, that affect society, like that, that affect time preference, that affect, you know, how we view things. Um, like, we, we were talking earlier uh, about... Uh, you know, you started to value your relationship with Jesus more because you had a son. That that very um, that choice of having a kid, that in itself is largely today driven by money, right? Like uh, the first question that every couple asks themselves when it's like, oh, well, we want to have kids, but eh, we can't afford it, right? Like that. How many times have you heard that? I mean. I'm 29. That that conversation is pervasive throughout some 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 of the couples that I know. You know? Yeah, and and it's a it, it's the first question that they ask, and and like one of, one of the questions that we ask in the book is, okay, well, if you are doing that, then what are you trusting, right? <laughs> if you're a Christian, what are, what are you trusting there? Because presumably, if you had enough money, then you're trusting that the money will take care of the kid. But it wasn't always that way, right? Like that's putting money, uh, like sort of uh, trusting money to do things that it can't, which is to take care of your kid. You never know what the future is going to hold. But if you think, you, oh, well, if, if I just make a little more money, then, then I can afford a kid. That, that's not the right way to look at it, at least biblically or as a Christian. It, it's, it's very much more on faith in God. And, and like for a lot of people in the past, that's what they did. And they had lots more kids than we do now because it's not about affording it. It's about doing what God says. And there's a pretty clear mandate, be fruitful and multiply. He, he wants you to have more kids. So that, that to me is a very clear indicator that money has a place that it doesn't, it, 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 that it shouldn't be in pretty much everyone's life. Yeah, and that's how you start out the book with chapter one is understanding money, and mm. trying yeah. to def define how people should understand money. And so I guess we can jump into how people misunderstand money and how they should view it. Yeah, I mean, they, I, for a lot of people, it's, um, it's become sort of like this means to an end. And, uh, and because of the way that, uh, that money doesn't allow you to save, they, they tend to have a very... Um, you know, a high time preference uh, instead of saving. Uh, and they, they consume a lot more and that has an impact on your soul, right? Like uh, there, there are things that if you 
continue to indulge in, it just, it, it, it rots from the inside and you don't have the proper perspective anymore on certain things. And I, I think it's pervasive throughout society. And this, this, uh, one of the points that we make in the book is, you know, when you have a bad money, it, uh, like, it causes everybody that uses that money to go in a certain direction. Um, and it's towards more debt and more um, high time preference thinking and doing all of these things that, that you wouldn't otherwise. If you were under a different monetary system, you wouldn't necessarily spend on the newest iPhone or whatever. It, it would be, you, you would have different priorities and you would think about things more long-term uh, a lot easier. And the thing is, if you have an entire civilization that's, uh, that's thinking very short-term, then the civilization's gonna collapse. Uh, but if you have people that are thinking long-term, then it builds up. And you know, these are the second and third order effects that we explore uh, in the book. Yeah. No, that, that line of thinking has me thinking, just like going back to the misallocation of capital and mm. creating things that may have otherwise not been created, companies particularly if we were under a sounder monetary system, just thinking my early 20s, hang, like myself included, working jobs I didn't love just for a paycheck. Mm -hmm. uh, and so yeah, millennials. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna focus on millennials, my, my generation. Working these jobs they don't like in cubes, pushing mm -hmm. Excel sheets, doing things they don't wanna do, working for that paycheck, typically working paycheck to paycheck until 25, you get a pay raise, maybe you can save some money. Mm -hmm. um, get a new apartment or whatever but during that time like the misallocation of capital creating these companies where people are working and they don't want to work there creates like a sense of dread it's like an existential dread that nobody really wants to talk about which mm -hmm. forces these high time preference activities like you hit friday mm -hmm. or even during the week you're quizzo you go into mm -hmm. the bar every night dollar beer night whatever it is you're living for the weekend so that you can get frankly hammered <laughs> to <laughs> To forget, to forget like the, the woes of the work week. Yeah, yeah. I, there, there's definitely a component of working a job you hate just because it makes a lot of money because you've essentially made money your God at, at, at that point. It, it's just, I will do anything for money. And money is a very cruel and harsh master uh, like that, that, that forces you to work and gives you no rest whatsoever. And you know, puts you in a position that's always going to, you know, enslave you. And, uh, and the modern monetary system is essentially makes making, uh, like claims dominion over you very easily. Um, and that, that's not a very good, that's not a good thing at all, especially with the advent of like credit card debt and things like that, because the government can print money whenever it wants. And, whenever a credit card company extends you credit, that credit does not come from somebody else's savings. It comes out of nothing. It's always printed for your benefit. So because that like sort of valve is there, uh, people end up using it and it ends up corrupting their souls and they have this existential dread. But I would point out another aspect of that existential dread, which is that there, there's a, a lot of uh, jobs that are more or less meaningless in our society today because of the easy money policies, because of all of the uh, money printing that's always constantly going on. 
there's a lot of rent seeking jobs um, and these don't add value to anybody, but you end up doing them. And like, you might even be making a lot of money, but it's not a coincidence that like the investment bankers in New York are like the biggest drug users. Like there's that existential dread is real and you can't ignore it for very long before you go crazy. And for that reason, those people end up having to numb that voice inside that's saying you are not doing anything that's useful and that you are ultimately detracting from civilization and that you are a drag on everybody else. And in order to quiet that voice, you end up getting addicted to almost everything, like, you know, whether it be drugs or, you know, food or sugar or, you know, sports or you know, pretty much anything is addictive these days. Yeah. It's crazy. Are we a wayward society? Yeah, I I would say so. And money got us there. And it's, it's been going off in this, uh, this weird direction of making money God, essentially, uh, in order to serve ourselves. And it's kind of a weird, uh, way to look at life uh as if it's something to just um you know dread for one part of it so you can sort of numb out the dread from the rest of the week and the weekend like that that doesn't seem fulfilling to me at all but that's the reality of many millennials like you said but probably a lot of other people as well yeah it's mandated too so i i um was thinking this this conversation this part of the conversations make me think of a Twitter thread I saw it was a conversation between Vic Raj and uh Malayunk. sorry if I'm butchering your name <laughs> but they were um they were talking about like jobs being a goal mm-hmm. right and not like economic efficiency mm-hmm. and so I think the I think um one of the two reference I think it was um Friedman uh who took a trip to China and witnessed like a hundred people digging, digging a ditch. Mm. Um, and, and, and he pointed out to the person he was visiting, like, why do you have all these people digging a ditch? One bulldozer could do this job. He's like, well, what would happen to everybody else's job? He's like, Oh, well, if your goal is more jobs, you should give them spoons. <laughs> um, right? Yeah. And, and that's, and, that's unfortunately the, the attitude of a lot of the elite people. It's like they, they have no conception that people can have a purpose outside of themselves. So they kind of have to give them a job or something uh, as if it's a, uh, as if people have no creativity whatsoever or can't figure out what, uh, what they would be doing, uh, without the government's help. Yeah. But everybody's caught in that trap. Like Mm. you got to get a job. You got to get a job no matter what, get a paycheck, get your degree, go into debt, get a job. I mean, obviously some of us have broken free of that, that mindset, but it's the dominant mindset, particularly here in America. Yeah, well, it's it's more about like uh, corporatism, I think. Um, and there, there, there is the sense that <clears throat> you don't have a real job if you go into uh, go go for go work for yourself, unless it's you know sort of like the approved VC model or something like that, where you're having to apply. And it has a lot of the same dynamics as like a normal job, which is uh, based on not necessarily your performance, but on the impression that you make on other people. 
uh, and that that's what you're judged on. So er everybody kind of learns how to um, display those uh, job signals or, you know, like cultural signals or whatever it is to get those jobs and then perform just well enough to not to get fired. And if you're particularly ambitious to look good to your superior so that you, you, um, you know, you, you can move up the ladder and so on. And unfortunately, this is a large part of uh, American society, right? It, it, it are these jobs that have a, a, um, a spin to them, right? Like you, you have to constantly present yourself a certain way rather than it being by merits at all. I, I mean, like even, even stuff like sports, it's, it's like, uh, okay, well, if you're a good teammate, then you're going to have, uh, get a better chance at a job unless you happen to be like a transcendent talent or something like that. It's, it's not really about a meritocracy. Whereas in a real market with lots of entrepreneurs, then it really is about, you know, the value that you're providing. And that's, that's I think, how it's supposed to be. That, that, that's God's intention for the world, is for people to interact in a way where you're contributing things to other people. And it's not about, like, sort of, like, uh, the impression that you make on people uh, or, I mean, unless that happens to be your job. It's it's much more about the value that you're providing to others, and that that's a lot more real than this like I, I don't know smoke and mirrors thing that everyone has to do when 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 they're in quote a quote unquote job. And unfortunately, we we get trained for for it from a very early age, starting you know in the in the twelve years of uh, of government mandated prison that we put our kids through. And uh, and you know you you get trained to like do something, appear a certain way, and then eventually uh, you go and do the same thing at a company and maybe you make it up the ladder to VP or something like that and then you retire and die. It's, it, what, a, what, a, what a horrible existence. I don't know. <laughs> I, I agree. And it, but So I guess where we could take this right now particularly is like how does a sound monetary system, a sound money allow people to lower their time preference and focus on providing value to others instead of chasing paycheck after paycheck in a easy monetary system. Yeah. So once you have sound money, you, uh, well, first of all, you get rid of all the unsound money because sound money wins over unsound money every time. Um, if you, if you're going to save in one, um, and this is something that we've talked about, I think, uh, in the Bitcoin community for a while is this whole idea of hyper Bitcoinization when everyone just takes the good money, um, it, that just gets more and more expensive. Whereas the bad money, which is the US dollar or whatever fiat currency, it gets worse and worse and it drops in price. Um, at some point it's going to, Bitcoin's just going to win because no one's going to take dollars. Um, now that might happen five years from now or a hundred years from now, I don't know. But at some point that's going to happen because the harder money is going to win. And we have really hard money with Bitcoin. Now, when you have that, uh, it takes away the power of the dollar. And the power of the dollar is that it can be printed for almost any purpose at any time in the form of loans. And it's done at every single level. It's not just done at the level of the Federal Reserve, but it's all their member banks and all their, uh, all their operations, which include commercial and retail and investment banking. All, all of them get access to printed money on whim through 
loans. Uh, and there's no, not even a reserve requirement anymore. Uh, not that that was ever really a, a barrier to begin with. But basically, anytime anyone is, uh, is qualified and wants a loan, they, they get the loan and, that, and more money comes into existence. And that's how it's been for quite a while now. So that is a major structural part of the world today. And that means that like, you can pretty much get everything now <laughs> and pay it back later. That, that's essentially what a loan is. So a anybody that's sufficiently powerful can get whatever they want uh, and right now and not have to wait. So it, it's a mentality of very high preference all across the entire spectrum of people. And this is from the very rich people all the way down to the very poor people um, who have access to loans. They're just way more expensive. They're called like payday loans or something like that. And, uh, and you know, they, the debt service on those is uh, significantly higher. But they, they can do that too. And when you get rid of that, now you kind of have to save. You, ha you have to do something or rely on the charity of others or whatever. And that makes you appreciate money a lot more, I think. And in, in so doing, that makes you want to do, uh, want to save more money because it, it, you can see the value that it has for other people. And that means that in order to earn that money, you, you actually have to go out and provide value to other people instead of a rent-seeking job because all of those are gone too. Once you eliminate all of these, uh, you know, weird inefficiencies that come out of fiat money. So in that way, I think you get something much more akin to the gold, gold standard, you know, the Gilded Age, where they built like entire canals and railroads and well, not railroads in particular in the US, but in other parts of the world, they, they were able to build them um, through without any public money whatsoever. It was, it was, it was uh, through like entrepreneurs that were like, okay, we can make a profit and things like that. Are you saying we could build roads without the government? <laughs> I would say so. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, the, the ability Who's going to build there. the roads? <laughs> Who's going to build the roads, Jimmy? You never knew it. Yeah, yeah. That, that's always like a, like a talking point of the anti-libertarians, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, and I guess, I guess that segues into like the transition to a, a hard money mm. is scary for a lot. Most people are scared of it. Like, mm. oh, we're going to lose all these crappy jobs, <laughs> deflation. Like, how do we transition? I think the the thought of a transition and the uh, uncertainty that would come with that scares a lot of people. And how mm. could we sort of lower those fears or, or remove those fears from people? Yeah, I, we, we ha the main strategy, I think, from the book is basically showing you all of the consequences of the current system now and get you to like just recognize all of the costs that we're paying uh, almost at a level of the soul, right? Like, because if you, if you do have very high time preference, um, well, you're kind of losing your soul a little bit. Uh, you're, you're, you're always kind of like um, doing things that aren't in your long-term best interest. And ultimately that leads to a brokenness, a dread, a, 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 um, a, almost like a, a spiritual bankruptcy that, uh, that, that comes from a financial bankruptcy um, that, that ultimately you know, is 
not just unsatisfying, but um, like a break in who you are. It's a, it's a terrible place to be in. And hopefully that scares enough people to say, okay, well, that, uh, that means that we, we need to do something else instead of this fear of uncertainty that comes from like not knowing what a future with sound money might be like. I mean, we try to paint a good picture of that too, but ultimately once people recognize all of the spiritual consequences, I mean, there are lots of really miserable billionaires. And I mean, imagine if you, like even if you made a billion dollars and you are completely miserable. Most people think that they would be really happy when they're billionaires. Fact, uh, like if you look at facts, that's not the case at all. Like they're just as unhappy uh, as a- any other sort of segment. It's just that we tend, we, we worship money. So we think that money will solve whatever problems we have. Um, you know, newsflash, that's, it's, it's, not, it's not money that's going to solve your problem. You, you need something deeper than that. And this is this is the spiritual aspect of it uh, that I don't think a lot of people really have grasped or um, digested uh, and, and really made real for themselves. And that's something that we hope to do with this book. Well, I hope you're successful because it seems like God is dying in today's day and age. People, let's be honest, there's going to be a lot of freaks out there listening to this and are like sort of roll their eyes like, ah, oh, Marty's talking about Jesus again. Like, God damn it. Like, <laughs> people are repulsed by religion. Um, not even Christianity, just religion, spirit, like uh, believing in a higher being and, and living for a greater good uh, with that higher being in mind. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Like, uh, well, I have some thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe people don't want to admit that that their life has not had meaning up to this point and to have to, to pivot and admit that there is a higher being that you should live for is a hard pill to swallow. Mm. Um, yeah. The hedonistic tendencies and stuff like that and, mm. and, and turning towards a higher being is maybe something people don't want to do. Yeah, I, it reminds me of uh, what Nietzsche wrote with the whole God is dead stuff, right? Like, um, and, and like that dialogue, I think, is pretty misunderstood uh, today. Like, you know, he, he said God is dead because here are all the consequences of removing God from, you know, your moral framework. And what are you going to do about it? Because this is, this is an, a monumental thing. You remove God from the equation which pretty much the Enlightenment thinkers did. But then they, they kept all of the consequences of God, which is the moral framework by which you know, civilization was. And Nietzsche was like, okay, well, you, you remove God, but you kept this, but that's all going to crumble. And I think that's, that's what you're describing here with uh, you know, like people that are kind of rolling their eyes or whatever is that once you remove God from the equation, you remove like a lot of meaning, a lot of morality, a lot of what, what it means to be human or what, what it means to actually achieve something or have a purpose or anything. And this is something that Nietzsche pointed out. And uh, you know, Nietzsche's solution was completely off the rails because he basically said, you need to be a sociopath and have like this uh, will to power morality where you know, might is right, and you get to do whatever you want to other people, and 
whatever, right? Like that, that, that's his like Nietzsche and Superman or whatever. Um, and I, I, that's a very dark and nihilistic world. And that's unfortunately the spiritual bankruptcy that we have to deal with right now. And it's, it's a sad and dreadful kind of reality for people to have to deal with. And instead they go and drown it in alcohol or something. It's oof. Yeah. Right. And this year is really driving this home, right? We have sociopathic people in charge who are forcing the masses, very mm. few people, mm. forcing billions of people to act in a certain way that is that is unnatural. Mm. Um it's it's very weird. I think a lot I think some people are waking up. Yeah, I mean that that's a transition that I think uh that has happened over the past couple of hundred years is post-enlightenment. It, it went from uh, the rulers had at least some idea that there was an authority above them, right? Like, uh, or before the enlightenment, rather. There, there was a sense that, okay, well, I may be king, but I'm still under the authority of God. And if I do something really evil, he's going to punish me, something like that. Um, and there, there was at least that fear, or I have to represent him in what I do and make sure that I am ruling justly and kindly and all this other stuff. Um, once you remove God from that equation, then it, it really becomes kind of this Nietzschean rule, right? Like a, a very much, I get to tell you what you are allowed to do. Um, and I, I, I think from a legal standpoint, that's called positivism. It's this idea that you only have rights that the government gives you. But if you think from a ruler's perspective, that's, that's extremely nihilistic and Nietzschean. It's, it's, I have the power to enforce this and you can't do anything about it anyway. So practically speaking, this is the morality that you have to subscribe to is that if I give you that right, then you have it. If I don't give you that right, then you don't have it. Uh, right to you know, cut hair uh, for money or, or drive taxis for money or whatever. Like these are all things that the government can give you the right to do or not. Whereas if you live in a world with God in it, then, or where you believe that God exists, then there's this whole concept of natural law, uh, of having rights that belong to you because you are created in his image and that you have dignity because you bear God's image and so on. And, and that, those are completely different views. And what we're seeing is this nihilistic, like controlling, uh, uh, you know, government and authority that's come to the forefront as a result of essentially removing God from the equation, you know, starting during the enlightenment and, uh, you know, getting worse and worse, um, you know, up until now. Yeah. No, I'm very happy you brought up natural law theory because I know we've both mm -hmm. spoken about this and said this, that Bitcoin is the greatest extension of natural law theory in quite a while, right? Preserving personal property rights and, and, and endowing the individual with full control over his digital bearer asset. This is a massive, this is going to have massive implications on society. That mm. the, f the fact that natural rights have been extended now in the digital age via Bitcoin. Um, thank God, right? <laughs> thank indeed. God for Bitcoin. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And, and, and that's the thing. It's a, uh, natural rights are ours and if somebody takes them away that is morally wrong 
if if I take your property, right? You have the, the natural right to property. If I take your property, it's wrong, regardless if I'm a uh, a robber or if I am the government. Either way, it is wrong because it is yours. And if if somebody takes it, then they are committing theft. At least this is according to Christian theology. I think most people would say the same. Even the most, I think this is a quote from the book, even the most ardent communist, if something is taken away from them, they will feel angry or sad or both because it's property that's being taken away. Like to, to a large degree, most people agree that natural law exists and that, but you know, to justify that without God is a very, very tough thing. Um, I, I've seen it done, but usually they rely on some sort of um, rhetorical sleight of hand to some degree. And it, it's, uh, and if you remove God, then, then you have positivism. You, you have no natural rights. You, you have only will to power. You only have, you know, those in authority and those that are not. And it's, it's a horrible, horrible world. Yeah, that's why Thomas Aquinas is probably one of the best philosophers to read on natural right theory. Uh, yeah. Natural law theory, excuse me, because he ties it all back. Mm -hmm. And God. he does it from a very rational perspective, which I really appreciate. And, uh, and you know, Summa Theologica is like steel man argument after steel man argument. Here's the best argument I can make against what I believe. And let's, let's figure out like, you know, here's my response to all of those things. And it's um, absolutely brilliant. Uh, I, like one of the most underappreciated thinkers, but then again, in a nihilistic society, uh, I, I, I read this the other day, you, you end, um, it, it is the end of history, right? Uh, like you don't study history anymore for the sake of learning what it is. It's, it's, it's become very Nietzschean. It's, it's history as a discipline has become whatever the winners want it to be in order to fit the narrative that they want to advance, um, which is very 1984-ish, but that's exactly what's happening. Uh, like one, one of the things that was, that was pointed out in the book I was reading was, you look at the history classes available at Harvard right now, it's like, you know, queer theory, uh, you know, African-American studies, um, you know, Asian-American studies, uh, colonial, uh, I don't know, like some negative word, uh, like con colonial violence or something like that. Like you learn nothing about the, there's not a class on the Renaissance, you know, uh, Reformation, you know, any of these things that we would normally put as like some of the most pivotal things that happened in history, not a class on those because it's now become like this narrative shaping thing, uh, very 1984, instead of learning about what actually happened. Yeah. Part of the patriarchy. You can't, you can't talk about the patriarchy. <laughs> then like today, today, YouTube announcing they're going to pull down videos that run against the, the grain of the narrative about the election right now. Like you can't have wrong thought about the election. Yeah, I mean, doesn't express. that sound very Nietzschean? It's and like there, there's no objective standard that anyone goes to anymore. It's we're going to do this and we're going to rationalize it maybe uh, according to whatever uh, code of ethics that you might believe, but it's we're going to impose this on you and you have to take it. And, and that's what this whole coronavirus um, you know, crisis and lockdowns and masks and everything it's been that way the entire time. The justification 
comes afterwards only as a way to appease people that already believe, uh, already want you in power. It, like for, for anyone that disagrees with you, it is, you have to take this. It's not an argument made from, uh, I mean, even, even the arguments made from public safety, I think are not done in like, uh, with, with any integrity at all. It, it, it's just, here's what we're going to do and we want to do this and therefore you kind of have to take it. And that it, it's like ever since, uh, like even like the Jeffrey Epstein thing, right? It was, we're not even going to bother covering it up or making it sound like remotely plausible. It's just, yeah, he died. Oh, the cameras weren't working. Oh, and you know, nobody was watching. Uh, and yeah. Um, yeah, that's what happened. Um, Go on with your lives. Go on with your lives. Nothing, nothing to see here. Yeah, it's it's extremely Nietzschean, and, and it's it it should be frightening because it's it's a bunch of sociopaths that are running this whole thing. It's uh, it, it thankfully we have Bitcoin, so we have some measure of being able to resist this nihilistic uh, future that's coming. Well, it seems like everybody's in a trance because just look at the response. Majority of people are docile, mm-hmm. or at least from my perspective. Maybe there's some closet, non-docile people out there who who do want to fight back. But the amount of people who are just running with the narrative that's shifting from week to week and parroting it to everybody else is it's pretty mind-blowing. It's scary. Yeah, well, I mean, th- to be fair, they had 12 years to learn how to do exactly that. Uh, and, well, I mean, maybe even like 16 or 20 years, right? Like where uh, basically the only correct answer was to parrot back to the teacher what they wanted to hear. Uh, th- this is, <laughs> we've been trained for this, man. Right. <sighs> it is crazy. And thank God we have Bitcoin, right? And it's crazy the parallels stories in the bible what's going on now and like the bible i mean it's it's a book of of a moral framework from which to live live by and filled with stories that sort of explain why you should live that way and and how you should view the world and and try to be a good person i think in the context of bitcoin one of the most famous stories that we probably touch on is is jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple Hmm. um like that that story alone through the money changers and people were selling pets, correct? Well, so they, they were selling um, the, the things that you would need to sacrifice. So doves for poor people, I think, and, uh, and lambs for uh, slightly richer people. Um, yeah, I, and one of, one of the, you know, I think it's uh, the chapter on the church. Uh, we, ha- we have a whole chapter on like how like that, that money, fiat money affects the church. And Towards the end of it, um, we, we quote that exact story and say, you know, now might be the time to flip over some tables because <laughs> things are pretty bad right now. And, uh, right. and that kind of indignation, uh, that kind of passion about it is sorely missing. Instead, you get lots and lots of compliance, lots and lots of People just sort of meekly, well, not not even meek in a biblical sense, but almost like weakly going uh, with it. I, I, I'm sure you've seen the picture on Twitter or something like that, where it's like 65 AD, Emperor Nero, I will throw you to the lions. Uh, uh, and the Christian says, I will gladly do that for the glory of my God. 2020, Gavin Newsom, we're going to fine you $5,000 for attending church. 
And then, you know, the Christian says, thank you for keeping me safe, which is like, oh, God, how wimpy have we become? This is like, right. you, need, you need more indignation right now. You need more um, anger at what's going on. Uh, we're, we're watering deserts of, uh, I don't know, like passionless people. Uh, and it's, it, it, it's a very sad situation. Are you optimistic we could turn it around? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I like part part of um part of the job of I, I don't know, like the the way I see this book, it, it kind of I, I'm not saying we're prophets or anything. It's just like it, it's supposed to have that kind of like prophetic voice, right? It's it's a call to turn things around because um the, the monetary system is just corrupting absolutely everything. Um, and if, if you look at various um, trials and tribulations that Israel went through in the Old Testament, a lot of it came through things that you wouldn't necessarily think would corrupt them, like intermarrying with foreign foreigners or something like that, which eventually ended up uh, making the Israelites go worship uh, another god and so on. Um, I think that's essentially what's happened with uh, with the fiat money is that it's corrupted all of society in, in ways that are just absolutely mind-boggling. And we, we point out some of those in the book. And as a result, uh, like, we really need to turn things around, like recognize that uh, and realize that there, there is redemption available, but it's not, um, it's not as easy as just going and buying Bitcoin, though that's going to help. Uh, but it, it's a whole mentality shift. It's a, it's a whole, um, it's a call to repentance, right? Like it, it's a, it's a call to, you know, potential redemption uh, through um, recognizing the evil uh, for what it is. Yeah. And people are going to be like, oh, you condescending people christians talking about repentance and stuff but it's like look around it's the number one song in the the fucking world right now wet ass pussy uh, <laughs> is that really the number one song i don't, yeah. I don't pay attention at least it was at one point this year and i forget um yeah there, there was a meme going around uh of like a radio dj um saying hey we're not to play it we're not allowed to play baby it's cold outside but here is wet ass pussy a, a song of party <laughs> b asking you to shove your dick in her mouth it's like, oh <laughs> yeah uh and yeah it, it's it's a very um power mad world right now and uh, and i think people can sense that uh and if if you care about liberty if you care about freedom if you care about any of these things, uh, you know, like the, the nice thing is like Bitcoin is the resistance currency for all kinds of evil that's going on. Uh, you know, like if love of money is the root of all evil, Bitcoin is the sort of antidote to a lot of that evil. Um, and, and hopefully it, it, it can help a lot of people to get a different mindset. And I, I certainly know it's true for me and I, I, I'm sure it's true for you. Once you get Bitcoin, you know, things change and you, you start thinking differently and you start prioritizing different things. All right, let's pull on this thread a little bit, hmm. uh, particularly for people who are probably screaming at their, at their device in which you're listening to this podcast. There's so <laughs> many people that love Bitcoin or obsessed with Bitcoin. Hmm. Like how, how do those... Uh, the love of all money is the root of all kinds of evil and 
people's infatuation with Bitcoin particularly? How do you cross compute this? Yeah, and uh, there's a whole section in this, like, uh, you know, Bitcoin um, doesn't fix our souls, right? Like it, it helps, but it's, that's ultimately not what, uh, like the temptation is to think that it is salvation for our souls. Um, and it's not, it's, it's one of the many ways in which it's a blessing. It's something that we can use to enhance our lives and to make it better, but it is not Christ. <laughs> it's not God. It's not, uh, it, it's the redemption of money, but it's not the redemption of our souls. Uh, if that makes sense, uh, that, that, that is something else. And that requires something, uh, completely different. So there, there can be the temptation to worship Bitcoin as well. And, uh, I've certainly seen that and it, it but it's not nearly as much, I think, as with fiat money. But that said, um, uh, you know, putting money, like Bitcoin is not putting it too high and not putting it too low, right? Like the, this is what we talked about at the beginning. It's, uh, it, it, it's like uh, discounting everything that money does. Uh, that's not healthy. And worshiping it like it's the only thing that matters, that's, that's not right either. It's putting it in the right place right that's what we, we would call temperance or moderation or something like that it's it's doing it the right amount or loving it the right amount um and that's a, a subtle and nuanced thing that requires a lot of maturity to learn how to do and I, I i can't claim to know exactly what that point is because you know honestly this this is something i struggle with is figuring out exactly where to put it and uh and, and placing it in the right place I will say though that it's a lot easier to do with Bitcoin than with fiat money because it, like fiat, just it's very hard to put in the right place uh, because of the effects it has and all of the evil that it contains uh, with with the power that comes from being able to steal from other people. Um, it, it's it, it, so I'll leave it at that. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of sense. No, and I I I too am guilty of finding that temperance sometimes. Uh, over uh, over expressing or over depending on my love for bitcoin but it's like weird so like let's try and put this in the context of our current condition like we were born when bitcoin was created and like so we obviously want bitcoin to succeed more importantly we think it's imperative that it does succeed so we can fix a lot of what's wrong with society how imperative are these early years in bitcoin's uh, life cycle that that we do champion it to a certain extent yourself you're educating people i have this podcast you have a newsletter i have a newsletter you have a podcast like how how important is this advocacy and do we get to a point where it's un, unnecessary uh, at some point in the future yeah and that that's a that's a difficult question because <laughs> that's essentially uh I, I think at least somewhat dependent on your personality, what your gifts are, what, what, uh, what talents you might have and, you know, um, where, what stage you are in life. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's one thing to be promoting it when, you know, you, you have relatively a lot of, um, free time and savings and things like that, where you can kind of do that. Um, it's another thing if you're, you know, like trapped in under a lot of debt and you, you're, you know, in a lot of, uh, you, you have a lot of bad habits and you need to break, like there, it, it really depends. Right. And it, it, it's, um, 
the degree to which uh, Bitcoin, I, I think, is like a monetary imperative or a moral imperative to fix the monetary system only goes so far as your capacity to be able to earn that. Um, and that's, um, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure where you draw, I, I don't know if there's like a single rule that will cover all people um, that are say listening to the show, like that, uh, okay, you need to do this amount of promotion of Bitcoin before you are absolved of any uh, evil that might come out of, uh, you know, doing X, Y, or Z. So, yeah. I'm not, I don't mean in that context. I mean, oh. like, in the context of if there is a window of opportunity through which we can mm-hmm. ensure Bitcoin success, mm. not for individual, um, quote-unquote, salvation or whatever, but just to ensure that the system survives. Like, yeah. Import- I, I wish I knew the answer, right? Uh, if only oh. we put in this much effort, it will ensure Bitcoin success. I think, like, to have that kind of insight into the possible futures would be prophetic. I, I, I don't claim yeah. to have that. So, but, uh, but I think it's overall very good thing and it fixes a lot of ills that are almost passed over or ignored by a lot of uh, Christians even. So like going in that direction uh, is I think ultimately a very good thing and hopefully something that we can achieve with this book a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so much we can go into here. It's, uh, <laughs> so people like to draw parallels between the launch of Bitcoin and the book of Genesis. Obviously we have the Genesis block. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't there seven days between um january 3rd and january 10th when the first block was officially mined um what do you think about these parallels do you think it was intentional or think yeah i i I don't know you'd have to ask satoshi and uh and i don't really know um i will say though that there there's uh something of a self-sacrifice that I, i think satoshi did in disappearing that's kind of parallel uh with you know christ sacrifice not not nearly as much obviously but there there is that sense in which at least how i choose to interpret his disappearance as sort of gifting this tool to the world by disappearing um and that was really only the that was really the only way that bitcoin was ever going to be decentralized was after him leaving um, and the fact that he did uh, is a gift to all of us. And I don't know, there, there are uh, some people that might even go further and say, you know, that, that was a gift from God or something like that. Uh, I don't know if I, I mean, in, in the sense that everything is a gift from God, I, I would agree. I, I don't know if it was like special revelation to, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto and, you know, God raptured him away or something like that. I, I, I wouldn't go like anywhere near that but yeah I, that recognizing it as a gift uh that it is in the same way that um that being saved is a gift that uh that christ's grace is a, god's mercy is a gift um that's i think uh, a useful way to look at it yeah i agree i agree it's um 
It's certainly a gift. I, I mean, I've talked to a number of individuals on this podcast alone who described how pessimistic they were before they found Bitcoin. Like it's a common, common theme between Bitcoiners that, that there was uh, almost a, uh, again, an existential dread of, of pessimism and, and no hope for the future that Bitcoin sort of changed. Um, and it's something sense. that the world could use right now. I, I don't know if you guys are, you, you're like receiving Christmas cards yet, but man, some people, they look like they aged a lot in the past couple of, past 12 months or something. Like just like being indoors and without human contact and, you know, just having to process like bad news pretty much every day. It, it's, it's taking a toll uh, and what they're missing is kind of hope. Uh, Bitcoin is hope right now, um, at least for those of us that hold it. Yeah, it certainly is. I guess, you know, like, how do we get people to, to drop their trust in these institutions, these Nietzschean evil institutions that are telling them how to live, taking away their free will and put their trust in God? Like, I know and it's no one path. Mm. It's a personal journey for each person, but again we talked about like people will probably get freaked out that we're even having this conversation people hear <laughs> jesus religion christianity put their holes in their ears they won't even want to listen to the opportunity to potentially find salvation through god mm. for the freaks that are still with us and maybe a bit curious and um interested in exploring this like what advice would you give to them well, if you're at all curious, um, the first thing I would do is pray. If God exists, then and He is a per if He's a personal God, and if you pray, He hears you. And um, and if you were God, what what like, you know, would you refuse a request from somebody that says, okay, if you, if you're really there, then reveal yourself. Um, I think that's a very reasonable prayer to say, okay something is really weird right now and uh and i i i'm depressed and i i don't feel like my life is meaningful and that i'm depressed or whatever um but i i, I you know my worldview has always been atheistic or something else but if you if, if god is there and he's listening reveal yourself to me. I, I think that's a perfectly fine prayer to have. Um, and that, that's a, that, that's a way in which you can sort of test the hypothesis, if you will. Um, I, I personally know a bunch of people, um, that have prayed exactly that prayer and were extremely surprised at the results. Um, you know, from every ethnicity and, uh, uh, you know, people from all around the world that, that have prayed that prayer and said, okay, yeah, I found out. And if you do it sincerely, I, I don't think he would refuse. So, yeah, I, I would say start there and and explore what you need to explore. But, you know, I, it, it, it's, it's an open invite, but no one's forcing you. We're, uh, God is not a Nietzschean God that says, I'm going to force you all to worship me. That's not how he is. Um, Whereas our, our um, authorities, unfortunately, have taken that Nietzschean ethic and are essentially forcing us to do whatever it is that they want us to do. Uh, and if you think that there's a better option, then I would suggest you look into it that way. Yeah. 
And why should we fear God? <laughs> well, um, if uh, defining God as like the uncaused cause, right? Um, and this gets into a little bit of philosophy about like what what that means, um, right? Yeah, it's misunderstood a lot, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's uh, you know like the atheists do this like sleight of hand. Uh, I I just believe in one less god than you. No, no, you don't. It's it's at least by the definition of uncaused cause, there can only be one, uh, and you can logically prove that if there were more than one thing that was uncaused, then you know you you'd have to figure out what the difference is, and then um, there, there's there's a whole set of arguments that Aquinas makes uh, uh, along these lines. There are modern translations that you can look up. I won't waste your time with those particular arguments, but uh, there there is God, and um, and in doing uh, whatever it is that you need to do to understand uh, what's going on. Um, there, oh gosh, did I just lose my train of thought? I think I did. <laughs> Can you cut that part out? <laughs> I don't know. We don't we don't make edits here, but we are at a minute or an hour, four minutes and thirty two seconds. I'll, <laughs> I'll write it down. Um, but yeah, like, what is the common misunderstanding with the phrase "you should fear God"? Or yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, that that was that that was where I was going. Um, so fearing God is is just knowing what He can do, right? Like what what He what like what position He holds in the universe, and that is literally sustainer of all things, all life, everything. Um, and if you don't fear that in some way, then uh, then like you don't actually get the concept, or you don't really or or you have a sense of entitlement that's way too large for your ego does that make sense i i, I would say it that way yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. and that's another thing i talked about with brian harrington when he was on this podcast um a few months ago he shared um the story of jesus going to, to save the one sheep that was left on the mountain mm-hmm. he left the whole herd and really what that story drives home is that jesus is there for the individual for you um and is here to empower the individual and let you know that you know you are special and you can bring value to this this world this this humanity that you're a part of um which a lot of people seem to have uh, lost track of that um yes we are a society but the individual is special you are special created in his image and you do have a purpose at the end of the day if you're willing to to search it out and explore it yeah i i think um c.s lewis put it this way uh, like for most of human history that it was thought that the you know the empire would live on so the empire is more important than any individual or something like that um and this is sort of like a common theme through any every civilization um the thing that Christianity makes different is that we are all eternal beings and uh, we're all living forever, whether in hell or heaven or whatever. And that means that each individual is of infinite importance, whereas an empire or a country or a party or whatever is at best temporary. So 
like you just do the math and infinity is greater than something finite. So um, that's another way to look at um, you know, how God sees things. Yeah. Which is, let's try and tie this back to Bitcoin. Like mm. the way the blockchain works, like <laughs> if it does sustain itself into the future, these transactions are going to be imbued in this ledger for eternity and everybody in the future is going to be able to prove something that happened in the past and know that it objectively happened mm-hmm. is a pretty mind-blowing fact when you think about it yeah well it, it's uh it's a log of truth um and it's uh there, there's there's a uh, so robert breedlove's one of my co-authors so one of the things that he likes to sort of chew on is this idea of truth uh being uh, a very good description of reality, right? Or at least that's how I would define truth. Um, the thing about, uh, you know, like what we were talking about with uh, Nietzsche and ethic and sort of like the end of actual history and it, it, it's all just sort of like twisting narratives, you, you don't get the truth at all. Uh, and in fact, to a large degree, truth doesn't matter uh, in those contexts. I, I mean, you, you look at what's going on with the election, um, you know, you, you have one side that basically watches the network news and believes whatever is coming out of their mouths. And then you have another side that listens to talk radio and believes whatever is going uh, coming out of their mouths. It's, uh, it's almost as if like they believe what they want to believe <laughs> rather than what the actual truth is. There's no real respect for truth anymore. Um, and this is this is something that happens when when it's all about power. The the truth is a means, not an end. It's it's not about discovering truth at all. It's about using it to further your own power. And that's what politics has essentially become when you remove God from the equation. Because you know, ninth commandment, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Right? Like it, it, it's part of part of respecting reality by describing it truthfully. Uh, that that's part of the Christian ethic that's been removed as a result of removing God from it. And it, uh, the thing that having a blockchain or having some record of truth brings back is that there is an objective reality and you can't deny that. You can't just be like, Oh, well, you know what? My reality is that I actually didn't give you 10 Bitcoins in, you know, 2000 and, 12 or something like that it's uh there there's no such thing it there's an objective reality that you have to um abide by um and that in itself is should be very obvious but in in the world today that sort of thing isn't and you you have lots of conflict over stuff like that i mean like i don't know if you saw like the stupid two plus two equals five thing on twitter a while back oh my god yeah like two plus two equals four is oppression yeah so that that that's where like we're we're getting to almost like a post-truth society where like the truth actually doesn't matter and this is like straight out of 1984 um you know where the guy says you know if i tell you it's two plus two equals five then you're going to believe two plus two equals five now for science and stuff we're still going to believe two plus two equals four but if I make you, if I tell you that two plus two equals five, you will believe it. And I mean, it, it's the most sociopathic, uh, you know, authoritarian thing 
but that that's kind of the reality that we're headed towards very quickly uh and that it, i mean hopefully that scares you to at least take a look at what natural law is and er everything else because that's where you end up when you remove God from the equation to a large degree. Uh, I, I like, I, I respect a lot of atheists, uh, that, that are able to have sort of a moral code without God, but like logically speaking, this is where it leads. And it's, it's a very scary place. Yeah. No, and it's, I mean, it's happening. It's happening. Mm -hmm. We talk about YouTube, like they're saying, hey, I mean, I think like you just described, you have multiple talking heads mm -hmm. people just can confirm their bias but when you even when you just shut down the the ability to have a conversation about it and let people explore and try to discover truth mm -hmm. by their own means you, you're ending up in that 1980 we're here it's here yeah. it's here and, and the scary thing is um like words start losing meaning and you you we've already like removed the ability for people to like meet each other and stuff. When, when you, when words lose meaning, then you lose the ability to communicate. And I mean, how fundamental is that to being a human, right? Like to be able to communicate with other people. Well, that's something that's been the most dismaying for me this year, particularly mm -hmm. again, having an infant, a toddler now, mm -hmm. son's 10 months old. It's like everybody wearing masks and not being able to read faces at such a formative age, like not being able to see people smile, only mm -hmm. seeing masks in their eyes. Mm -hmm. And it's something like that is why I'd, I've been searching for, like I've been traveling to places mm -hmm. uh, that don't mandate masks outside and try to give him the ability to see facial expressions, actually have his brain form in a way that it should. Yeah. Taking that fundamental human connection away it's insane well it's dehumanizing it's debasing humanity and uh and that this whole year has been one long debasement of human dignity uh and and what well in, in terms of like natural law rights and things like that but also just like very basic communication and need for other people and things like that it, it's it's a debasement of all of that uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people are okay with it because they prioritize, you know, I, I guess physical life over any sort of, you know, purpose or meaning to their lives. Um, and I, I think that's a terrible trade-off. It's on par with Bitcoin Cash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And but it's uh, even though we're being very pessimist here it seems like people are waking up like you see the new yorker cover i know uh, yeah yeah I, I i saw the cover with uh with, with basically like a messy room on zoom or something like that yeah woman in her early 30s drinking wine hanging out with her cats talking to somebody over zoom like that's, that's where society is right now and and how meaningless is that right like you're not even like actually talking to somebody in person um, you know, you're, you're not doing anything meaningful. Your, your, your room's a complete mess. And, uh, and your, your communication is through like this little window on, uh, on a screen instead of the entire experience of your full being. Um, that, that just seems so, 
like it, it limits the human soul so much. It, it's, it's, it, it's projecting onto like two dimensions, what's like eight dimensions. And it's, it's mind boggling that people are standing for that or, or I don't know, maybe, maybe like humans have been debased in so many dimensions so much that it, it doesn't feel like that much more of a debasement to be forced to stay inside uh, and, and do like just Zoom chats. Well, it's funny. I have um, page 86 of your book right now <laughs> up on my, on my screen here, hyperinflation. Therefore, this inequity will be to you like a breath about to fall, a bulge in a high wall. This collapse comes suddenly in an instant. And talking about the debasement of humanity, like <laughs> is there a hyperinflation of humanity debasement going on right now? <laughs> yeah, is there I would, a tipping point? Yeah, I would say so. Because uh, like what, what is, so the question I would ask first is, the government is debasing humanity, right? Like, or human dignity to a degree through its exercise of authoritarianism. What are they getting back for it? More control. Yeah. Well, it's it's sort of like being God or something like that, right? Like, it, it's this idea of uh, of power or something else, and, and it's all, all, always inevitably for a few particular people. And they're all hypocritical too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They'll tell you, stay home, wear a mask, don't gather with more than five people. And yet they'll go to Michelin star restaurants, dining without masks indoors with 15 people. We'll go on trips. Mm -hmm. they, they don't abide by. Yeah. And, and that hypocrisy is a symptom of that Nietzschean like ethic of I'm going to do what I want to you. And uh, there's nothing you can do about it because the rules can be different for me and you, because of course I'm the one in power that, that, that's sort of that, that, that's there, there's a weird status game at play here. Right. And, and really by pushing the dignity of other people down, they're raising themselves in status a little bit. And they're willing to do that because status is zero sum. You push enough people down just a little bit, you you go up. Yeah, but what's the end goal there? You suppress everybody else and everybody else lives in misery and you are able to say you're in power and then you die and society is just a wasteland behind your death. Yeah, I something like that. I like I, I still remember like the ending or towards the end of the book nineteen eighty four. It's like uh you know why we do this, Winston? And then Winston's like, yeah, it's because it's for our own good, blah, blah, blah. And, and the guy's like, no, we do this for power. We do this for power only. And it, it, the party exists only so that it can have power. And it, it's, a, it's a very pathological like, way of looking at things. Well, it's, it's literally sociopathic. Um, but that, that I think is like what you get when you don't have God in the picture is there's no higher authority. So you are that authority and exercising power is its own drug almost. Um, I think the, the phrase is called like libido dominandi, the lust for power. It, it, it's, a, it's an addiction in of itself that perpetuates and it, it causes I mean, I think you're seeing it right now, probably in a lot of governors and and think and people like that that are like doing obviously hypocritical things, but it's about power to them, and um, and it, it puts them higher in status somehow, despite 
like actually not like they they're not getting to enjoy life like they were before covid either but at least from a relative standpoint they're doing way better than us plebs that are having to stay home yeah this just is starting to question my mind like has the debasement of the money and of society led to a lack of god in people's lives or is a lack of god in people's lives led to the former Hmm. Which, which, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Huh? Um, yeah. Or more precisely like destruction of the egg or the destruction of the chicken. Cause they're both sort of like negative things. Um, yeah. I, uh, it's hard to I say. Yeah. yeah I, I, I would suspect that Yeah, it would be really interesting to trace sort of like enlightenment thinking and, uh, you know, which is really what started the whole atheism craze, basically. And, uh, and the advent of central banking and sort of like creating that uh, fiat money. Because I, I do think they run together somewhat. Um, right, and, yeah, the destruction of the nuclear family slowly but surely over the last five decades, which a nuclear mm -hmm. family is probably more likely to be God-fearing, mm -hmm. uh, try to replicate, try to go forth. Mm -hmm. uh and, and multiply um so yeah I, I i'm sure there's a correlation i'm not sure which causes which or even if it's that simple it might be a non-linear relation um but there there's definitely something there about um like a lack of belief in god uh i mean so one of one of the things that we point out in the book is uh in faust um that's a play by goth or whatever his name is um but there you know basically there's a king and uh you know there's an advisor named mephistopheles who's basically the devil saying like okay you, you can go and debase money uh and he was unwilling to do it because he was like well but that doesn't exist well it's just gold that you haven't dug up yet just issue those um and he eventually does it and and it leads to all sorts of evil but I imagine that those two have some correlation because if, if you believe that you will be punished for not respecting reality, um, then, then you're less likely to create something as evil as fiat money. Um, but if you do respect God and all of the moral consequences that come out of that, and then, then you wouldn't do that, right? Like the, the whole of the current central banking fiat-backed monetary system is based on debt. And debt, as we argue in the book, is, is a form of slavery. So you, you're able to enslave the entire population through this money. And that is really scary. Uh, that, that is essentially what's happened to a lot of us, especially if you're in a rent-seeking job. You, you really have no recourse. Yeah, and that's something I'm very happy that Robert Breedlove has really honed in on in recent months is, is the fact that we're modern-day slaves due to the the monetary system that we're under mm -hmm. um, and due to the slave trade in the 1800s here in the U.S., 1700s, 1800s. People sort of shy away from, from going as far to say that, that we are subjected to some form of slavery today, but there's no doubt about it, we are. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's what usury really is, and that's uh, another popular topic from the Bible. What what the heck is usury? It's a it's a way of enslaving someone with money, um, and you know, I mean, that sort of thing is very common in say like India today, where you know um, somebody's in financial trouble and uh, they'll lend them like a hundred dollars worth, and and basically the way to uh, they'll make them work to pay it off, but then the interest is too much that they can't pay off the original principal because the interest is growing faster than they can work it. And that, that, that sort of thing is very common in different parts of the world. That's what I think is usury. And if you they think of loans here. Yeah. Yeah. I, but you know, I mean, we're, it, it's being done at sort of like a societal level where we're made to pay for, you know, stuff that we didn't even get the benefits of. <laughs> it's, it's really like debt from, you know, uh, the 1960s or whatever. And it's, uh, it, it's a perpetual slavery of an entire people. Um, and the U.S. does it to all the other countries where they're able to export fiat money in exchange for goods and services. Like, I, I don't know how the U.S. is able to do that and get away with it. Basically, they send out money that they print and they get goods and services. What? What? <laughs> and going back to Jesus kicking the money changers out of the temple and flipping the table. Like yeah. having a child yeah. and realizing that the system and QE, what's going on today, M1's increased by, I, I believe, 35 to 55% this year. I forget whether M1 or M2, but yeah. there's like something like a third of the money that's ever been printed was printed this year. Mm -hmm. just, what are you doing? You're pulling future production to the to the present and you're forcing or taking current people. savings into your, you know, honeypot, I guess. Uh, and not, not just from the U S people, cause all the money's in other central bank vaults and stuff, you're pulling yeah. it from all over the world, from some of the poorest people, the, the ones that experience hyperinflation, they're the ones paying first. Yeah. And as a parent, it makes you literally want to flip a table and be like, I don't want my, <laughs> my child, my future children to come after. Yeah. A singular child that I have now to, to live under the system. Yeah. And, and this is one of the questions that we ask in the book is like, man, like we're, we're taking out mortgages, right? That's money that's being printed just for us. But really that's theft from all the other people that have saved money because it's not coming from one particular person's savings because it's created out of thin air. You're expanding the money supply for your own benefit. The bank benefits, you benefit, society does not. Every loan is yeah. like that. And, uh, and it's like, well, if that's the case, it, it, is that licit, right? Like uh, to use sort of like a Catholic term, like is that licit? Is that, is that a good thing? Is that something that, that God would allow? I don't, I don't think so. I, like if, if it's a loan from somebody's savings, it's one thing. But if it's, a loan, if it's a loan in the conventional sense, which is money printed out of nothing for your benefit, but at the expense of the community, I don't think so. And I, I speak as somebody that has a mortgage. I'm like, dude, um, I'm part of the problem. <laughs> well, is it, is it possible not to be part of the problem today? Yeah, if you, if you don't have that, I, I think you're pretty clear, on, at least on that front. But, mm -hmm. but uh, I mean, pretty much everyone is entangled in this massive sin of fiat money. Uh, and 
like, and I include like churches on this too, because they take out mortgages uh, on their right. big, beautiful buildings. So uh, like, and it's not just stealing from the savings of people in the United States. You're stealing from the savings of people all over the world, right? Like wherever there's a dollar standard, you're probably stealing from them. I mean, a tiny mm -hmm. amount, but it's still some amount. This brings up an interesting topic, a topic that's been hot on the Twitterverse this week. Is it a moral imperative to speculative attack the dollar and, hi and hyper-Bitcoinize faster um, <laughs> so that all that debt can be essentially demonetized and debased? Yeah, I mean, th this is where, um, like, sort of the, this is, the, this is where I think you have to sort of have the attitude of the profit. Like if you've warned people and then they they all ignore you and then then it might be okay for a speculative attack. I don't know, but um, I don't know if people have been sufficiently warned. Um, hopefully this book helps them. But that that that's it's the like iniquity that that we're all in is this weird system of fiat money that's just the cesspool of thievery uh that that we've all more or less kind of participated in um yeah like how, how much are we culpable i don't know like that's that's a hard question but it's right. one worth pondering yeah one should be at least a bit inquisitive right mm. um or else you'll just lead that life of ex existential dread that we've been talking about. You'll wake up one day and be like, what the hell did I do with my life? Mm. That's another thing like we should drive home, too. It's like maybe a bit scary to put yourself out there and try to provide value in a world by try to provide value to the world by trying to find purpose that may not uh, may not provide a direct line of income or financial security at least as you presently perceive it but i don't know where i'm going here i sort of lost my well, well so there. so that that whole idea of like working with your hands to provide value to other people i i, I think that is what a lot of people's purposes should be right like it, it's it, it's uh I, I think it's in ephesians it says uh you know work with your hands right like he who steals should steal no longer but you know, working with his hands to produce something good, right? Like, um, that's what we should be doing. But too many people would rather go find a rent seeking job, and which is really doing nothing and getting paid for it. Um, because of their desire to, because work is essentially a disutility, they, they don't want to do it. And they, they would rather not provide value and still collect an income which unfortunately is true of way too many people. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's, that's good. That, or, I mean, that, that's, that's the existential dread. That, those are the people that are seeking purpose and meaning. It's right there. You just need to go and work and do something with your hands that, that actually provides value to others. And that, that's, um, that's where I think entrepreneurship is, I think, biblical. It's, it's something that when you do create something that is of value to other people, it is a lot more satisfying. And that existential dread goes away to a large degree instead of feeling like you're useless and doing nothing. Yeah, no, I agree. And I'm clicking and moving my mouse here because I want to pull up 
a tweet. And again, I'm not trying to like toot my own horn or what we're doing at Great American Mining, but that's something I tweeted out right before we hopped on is that I love working at Great American Mining because we're actually building things, physical things that could potentially have a profound effect on our economy. And, mm. and that's another opportunity provided by the Bitcoin network. Like there is a physical that many people uh, discredit mm. or completely overlook in, in the Bitcoin network, which is back of proof of work consensus mechanism that dictates that you have to plug in physical machines and create physical infrastructure um, with your hands. And, and again, I feel very grateful to be part of the Great American Mining team because we're actually building things with our hands, not me personally, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm helping the company as we, we build these physical things to help oil and gas producers and the Bitcoin network at large. Yeah, and, and there's something noble about that, right? Like uh, about adding value to society through capitalism, uh, uh, like getting paid what you're worth because what you produce is actually like useful to others. And, and, and that's, that's something that we uh, talk about all throughout the book is that money is a representation of how much value or it should be ideal money should be a representation of the value you've provided other people and that it's storing up the value for later consumption and and like accumulating that capital you can you can actually use it later to start another business or to provide even more value through uh, through a bigger supply of money being used for something or other, that yeah, that that's real. That that's real value, and that's how the civilization gets built up. And unfortunately, that's uh, uh, de- been deprecated in favor of sort of like the government model, which is you know fund a few companies that employ everybody, and it's it's way more kind of socialist than capitalist in that way. And that's one thing I really appreciate about Bitcoiners, especially when they're thinking long term and people like Bitstein, uh, like Michael, Michael Goldstein, who think about the future they want to build, particularly around buildings and, and things that will be around forever, which isn't necessarily um, uh, something that they'll build for themselves, but for society at large. Like Bitcoiners talk about building things that last generations, centuries, mm-hmm. things that will provide benefits to people after we're, we're dead um bitcoin itself as you're building it out right it's it's a long-term goal it's sort of selfless because you're you're ensuring that future generations have this very important tool that preserves um dignity and the ability to, to live a good life as we've been describing throughout this whole conversation yeah there, there were all these like um families back in the renaissance and stuff that you know, had like two year, 200 year plants to like irrigate like particular lands and stuff like just public works that basically would take many generations. And, um, you know, I mean, even cathedrals and things like that, they were, they were built by people, um, usually fairly small numbers of people, uh, which is surprising, like a giant cathedral, um, built by like a village of like a hundred people or something like that. And it took like 130 years, but that's more than the lifetime of any single builder. And they did it because that was something that they wanted to last. And those, those buildings are still up today. Whereas like buildings now, they're all kind of utilitarian <laughs> or uh, done for the sake of uh, you know, usage instead of 
beauty or uh, or something like there there's no purpose beyond the lifespan of a single person yeah i think hospitals are a great representation of this right mm. like mm. hospitals used to be beautiful places mm. um especially in europe huge buildings with tall ceilings mm. a lot of natural light and now everything's just completely desanitized and uh very i don't know how to describe it bleak if you will yeah or sterile or something like it's sterile it's, <laughs> sterile is the word i was looking for yes yeah just just uh kind of kind of gross uh in a weird way um you know describing a hospital as gross is a little bit weird but yeah it, it, it's um and you know you lose that that beauty that comes from that and uh that that idea of something that's transcendent um and you know that that's something honestly that we've lost there 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 aren't that many timeless sort of transcendent beauty things anymore um which is uh which speaks to the fact that a lot of people aren't looking for to make those things or value those or enough people that value those things um so very very sad uh but Let's make sure to uh, add that Bitcoin is something that does seem like it will last. So that at least has, you know, is something that is being created now that is going to be there for future generations and so on. That's something that can be rallied around. Mm. Yeah. And so I guess we can end, end it on this. Like, so bringing it back to the beginning of the conversation, we're talking about ethics and money production um and what was the other book you mentioned um uh that um honest money honest money both having sort of <laughs> negative endings and not really optimistic endings how how does thank god we have bitcoin provide an optimistic view of the future for your readers well the the main thing is uh well we we first of all point out that gold has failed um and it's failed multiple times uh, and the the reason why it's failed is because it's central uh, it's very easy to centralize because it's physical and it's hard to secure uh what what peter schiff thinks is uh the main advantage of gold is its actual ultimate weakness is that it's very hard to secure so everyone puts it in a vault that leads to fractional reserve lending that leads to lots of bankruptcies, which leads to central banks, which leads to uh, it being converted to fiat money. And then that, that it, it's just sort of like step after step after step of iniquity, uh, of, uh, of doing things the wrong way in order for things to be convenient for those in power. Um, with Bitcoin, we have the ability to do things differently than we did with gold. Because uh, gold is, a, a, in a weird way, led to fiat money. Um, but with Bitcoin, we have the ability to be our own banks. Uh, we have the ability to run our own nodes. We have the ability to verify ourselves instead of trusting somebody else. And there's no third party that sits in between that can be regulated, that controls everything or whatever. And that is very, very powerful because um, it means that the money can be separated from the state and we can opt out of all of this. Uh, so instead of trying to get a political consensus around the gold standard, we don't have to do that with Bitcoin. We can all each opt out on our own. And we, we can do things slowly instead of needing one major political push 
in order to get it done, uh, kind of like what they had to do with abolition in uh, England or whatever. You know, I mean, it took Wilberforce something like 22 years before before he was able to abolish slavery and he introduced it every year. It, it took a tremendous amount of political will to do. Um, Bitcoin is not like that at all. It doesn't require that level of tremendous um, political willpower. Uh, it, it just requires individuals to opt out on their own. And it, it's in a sense almost inevitable because hard money wins over bad money. Um, and what we have right now is bad money. And that's the hope is, uh, is that you know, the, the people that read it will say, okay, I believe this and it does seem inevitable. I'm going to make it happen a little earlier by getting into Bitcoin myself. And that's all it takes. Some powerful stuff. Thank you for writing this book. Thank God we have Bitcoin. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on the show. It, it was a pleasure to uh, speak to you about it. And yeah, it's uh, six months of uh, coronavirus um, Zoom calls, essentially that that made it made it happen. So, yeah. Where uh, where can the freaks find it? It's on Amazon. Thank God for Bitcoin. Just search for it. Um, Eight authors, including myself, Robert Breedlove, Julia Turiansky, George McHale, and uh, and many others. So it, it's a it's a it's a pretty uh, pretty short read, 120, 140 pages, something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it shouldn't take more than a couple hours to read on a on a lazy Saturday or something like that. And we, you know, we ha all have lots of lazy Saturdays with Corona around. Yeah. Well. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for coming on. It's a long time coming. And I think I have a, an Austin trip coming at some point in early 2021. So I'm definitely going to hit you up. We can meet in person and we don't have to talk via the Zoom call. <laughs> well, then may maybe we can record something for my podcast. I don't know. We'll see. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, Bitcoin fixes the oil and gas industry. <laughs> that would be interesting, actually. <laughs> It is, uh, yeah, we can dive into that. I've got, I've got a lot of, uh, a lot of material on that particular subject. All right. Well, let's do it then. Awesome. Well, we'll coordinate that off the record. Jimmy, thank you for coming on. It's been an incredible conversation again. Uh, one that I don't get to have too often. I'm very selfishly happy that, that we had this particular conversation because people tend to shy away from this stuff. Anytime, man. Anytime. And, uh, you know, even offline, just let me know if you ever want to talk about it, because it, it's something that I, I feel is a big part of who I am, and I don't mind talking about it at all. Awesome. Well, thank you for that offer. Thank you for coming on. That's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. <laughs>